Welcome to the Microbiology Lab Pod. My name is Johan Bengtsson Palme, and I am an assistant professor at the Department of Infectious Diseases at the University of Gothenburg. Today is the 4th of February, and this is the first episode of what you could perhaps call the second season of the pod. Today's pod will be all about global change, uh, mostly in the light of global warming. We will discuss what effects global warming and other global change factors have on microbial soil communities, and we will talk about what happens when bacteria and viruses are released from permafrost and ice sheets, the so-called cryosphere. And uh, here with me to discuss all this exciting science today um, is Emil Burman. Hello, Emil. Hello. How are you, Ivan? I'm good. Uh, so Emil is a doctoral student who studies disturbances and invasion in microbial communities. Uh, how is the doctoral studies going like a month in uh well i mean we're in the middle of a pandemic right so everything is somewhat uh on halt but uh, if you overlook those facts i feel that the start uh, of my uh, phd has gone very well i remember one of my former colleagues had this um this uh, sign on her wall that said how my research is going you that's how my research is going and i guess that sort of applies to basically everything right now since we can't even access the lab facilities at this time yeah so also here is sebastian wetterstein who is a master student in the lab working on improving the taxonomic classifications in metaxa 2. how are you doing sebastian hey you i'm doing well nice to hear we're also joined by mabuba lubna actor who is a master student working with the genes that contribute to microbial invasion ability specifically in pseudomonas egrinosa how are you doing, Mabuma? Yes, I'm doing great. You know, the nice weather. Oh, yeah, we should not complain. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's crispy, cold, sunny. I was out walking on the lake just before the meeting. It's fantastic. Yes, it's nice. Yeah. And this is rare for Gothenburg. I mean, we should remember that this happens, I mean, from my experience, maybe one in five years. So. We are also joined today by uh, Anna Abramova, who is a postdoc in the Embark program, um, specifically working on monitoring of antibiotic resistance in the environment. Hello, Anna. Hello, Johan. All good on your side? Yeah, everything is good. I'm very excited about today's podcast. I think this is a very interesting topic we are going to discuss today. Yeah, uh, and I, I should say to the listeners that Anna was the one who came up with this idea of doing a podcast on global change. I think that's really an exciting theme. We are also joined by Marcus Venne, who is a master student working with antibiotic resistance development in soil. That seems very relevant for today's discussions. How are you doing, Marcus? Hello, Johan. I'm very well. Thank you for asking. I will hopefully have some comments to contribute to today's discussion, but we'll, we'll see. Yeah, I, I feel so, especially on the uh, on the last paper we will discuss on the cryosphere. I think that you you will have something to say, right? It's quite rare that I don't have anything to say. It doesn't have to be smart. <laughs> we also have guests on the podcast today. First, Emilio Rudbeck. Uh, you are a master student in Kaiser Trell's lab. Uh, how are you doing, Emilio? I'm doing excellent. Enjoying working in bioinformatics now that everything is shut down. Yeah, that's a, definitely an upside of working with bioinformatics. So could you just like in a sentence or two describe the work that you are doing? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm working with... Uh, a colleague of Johan's Kaysaterel, <clears throat> where I'm currently enrolled in a project where we're trying to do analyze the uh, genome-wide epistatic interactions of uh, Helicobacter pylori using some really cutting-edge tools 
that are coming out now and being developed. So, yeah, interesting project. Yes, and lastly, uh, Shumaila Malik, uh, you are also a student in Kaisa Trails Lab. Hi. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm uh, doing very well, and uh, it's a very good experience over here uh, working with Kaisa. And uh, currently, I am working with Edge uh, Pylori strains, and uh, my 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 total work is dependent on uh, detecting the antimicrobial resistance genes in. Uh, H. pylori strains that have been uh, obtained from uh, from Iran, and uh, yeah, that's my my whole thing. That's very nice. I think I think both of you seem to have very exciting projects. I would love to hear more about them uh, in the future. Maybe we should have a, a pod on Helicobacter pylori only, uh, or something like that. So thank you all for joining today. I think we will have an exciting discussion on um, the the climate change and other global change factors uh, and their impact on the microbial communities. So Anne and Emil, you were both part of this paper that we published in Bioinformatics in very early January this year. Uh, so, Anna, could you just tell us a few words on what this paper is about? Uh, yes. So, this paper describes the software package called CAFE, which stands for Coefficient-Based Analysis of Fitness by Read Enrichment. And this package specifically was designed to um, analyze transposon mutant sequencing experiments data. Um, this type of this type of experiments are used to determine the relative fitness of individual mutants in experiments um, in experimental or in vivo conditions. There are a bunch of tools available actually to analyze this type of data, but most of them lack feature of um, allowing for paired sample design comparisons. So this feature was included into Cafe package, which is written in uh, R and Perl. And it can analyze data from paired transposon mutant sequencing experiments, uh, generate fitness coefficients for each gene and condition, and in the end, perform um, appropriate statistical testing. So that's a short summary. Yeah. So, so what were your main role in this project? Well, I came a little bit later into this project. And... Um, by that time, the main package was essentially ready. So my main task was to perform evaluation uh, of cafe performance in comparison to other available tools. Yeah, and that that comparison actually was pretty useful because it highlighted something that was not perhaps obvious to us from the beginning, namely that most of the other tools don't make really statistically sound assumptions on how the data is distributed, uh, which means that at least in two cases, we had tools that did statistically overconfident calls, right? Yeah. So I think that was actually a very useful thing that you uh, that came out of the evaluation that you did. What was the experience with the project? How do you feel about it? Uh, I think it was a great collaborative work. I really enjoyed doing it. And uh, I should mention it, it was also the fastest publication process I ever been involved into. <laughs> yeah, I think it's 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 definitely on my top three as well in terms of from initiation to published paper. Um, the quickest one I've had is the original Metaxa package, um, which 
<laughs> was conceived in like December 2010 and the paper was published in June 2011. So that's that's moving quite quickly. Uh, but this is also yeah. on my on my top three list of quick publications, I think. <laughs> yeah, so I guess con- uh, congratulations to the three of us, uh, both uh, you, Anna, and Emil. You've done great work on this paper. Uh, we should also extend these congratulations to Havila Kanchi, who has now left the lab, and to Adriana Osinska, who were also involved in this paper. I think it's also worth remembering that this is around the one-year anniversary of the COVID p- pandemics outbreak here in Sweden. Um, so we've lived approximately for a year with COVID-19 now. So what are your experience so far? I think I'll start in your end, Mabuba. How are you coping? Well, if I have to think about the positive side, I should say that I have the ability to sit on a chair for hour after hour and see this screen. Yeah, I, I just increased this ability. Well, and, you know, and I should say that uh, some stuff also hampered for this pandemic because, you know, we are kind of restricted sometimes to go outside the home. And so we have to maintain the social distance so we cannot interact much with our friends. Yeah. But I think um, I'm just kind of used to, to, to take it as a normal scenario. Yeah. I mean, that's in some sense, that's the scary part that this is be, becoming normal. Marcus, how has the pandemic experience been in the first year? Well, it has been quite both strange and normal because I'm sitting at home. So my project hasn't really been affected that much. But I have had uh, more time to spend with my wife because she's also at home. And I had a daughter in November, meaning that I could spend more time with her instead of going to a, um, an office. But I'm, I am actually quite still grounded in reality or pre-corona because I'm working at a store, Sustainable Logit, which has a monopoly on selling alcohol this week in a store that is, I don't know, 20 or 30 kilometers away. So I have to take the bus to a mall, spend uh, every second weekend in a store meeting hundreds of new people every day. Uh, so, so in that way, it has not changed a lot. So I'm still interacting quite a bit with people. So I don't feel as isolated because there are people at home and I meet my colleagues. But it's still, it's not just positive because I know that I have to go meet so many new people, especially now when the, there are so many new cases of COVID. And my colleague, I think he had a positive corona test two days ago or something like that. So it, it has both positive and negative. It's, it's exciting. <laughs> I can say it. You, on the other hand, already have tested positive in the fall. So, I mean, yes. hopefully you have antibodies, yes, right? Yes, hopefully. You never know. Fingers yeah. crossed. <laughs> Emil. I guess you are the one one of the people who have your work the most impacted this year. Yeah. <laughs> How are you feeling about the pandemic a year in? Uh, I'm not happy. <laughs> I mean, I, I I don't know how else to put it. Like, I mean, if I mean, like, since a lot of my work is you know laboratory based, and I'm barred from the lab, that literally means that I can't do the major drive of my work. Also, given that you have sort of just started your PhD. It's like, there's not like you have a shitload of data that you can go back and sit and analyze. And yeah. uh, I mean, this is I the mean, time when you were supposed to generate all that data. 
Yeah, I mean, but it, that being said, of course, I was fortunate in the way that I was allowed to uh, have an employment in this lab before I started my PhD. So I had before had I had some data, but now it has come to that state that I have run out of data that I can actively analyze. Mm-hmm. So I need to generate more, and I can't do that now because yeah restrictions are put in place. So just, just for the context of this, we are we are sitting here and still in a limbo because we don't know if the restrictions will be lifted on Sunday as they have said before or if they, there will be prolonged restrictions on lab work for the rest of February. So we're, we don't really know the future here, which is actually one of the one of my big concerns is that we don't know what will happen next. So let's let's turn this around a little bit and ask a question, and I'll I'll post this to you, Anna. Uh, is there something good that we can bring from this pandemic now moving forward? This is a very difficult question. <laughs> I mean, globally, I think the good thing should be that uh, after experiencing experiencing this scenario, when something that started seemingly really far away suddenly was everywhere around the globe and in your neighborhood. Um, I think the world should bring some thing from that and be more prepared for the future pandemics, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, in terms of science, what I, I think, I think one thing we could take with us here is that if we actually do an effort, we could develop things like vaccines incredibly fast. I don't think anyone imagined a year ago that there would now be ongoing vaccinations of the general public. I mean, if you remember the first the first sort of timelines for this, it was like there could be a vaccine ready in 12 to 18 months, but probably longer. That was sort of the prediction. And I think the first vaccine got approved like 10 months later. That's before... The, the envisioned time frame for how long it would take. Um, and I think that's actually something that is worth keeping in mind moving forward, that if we really want to do something about something as a society, there are things we can do. If we can so quickly mobilize against a pandemic, it shouldn't be that hard to also mobilize against climate change and carbon dioxide emissions. So, I mean, it's... And you can make a lot of arguments that there are complicated factors here, but I think there's still some core to that that is true, that if there is a will, there is a way. But it should be should be said that this particular virus was very... We were very lucky to actually have this particular virus because it appears that the the virus does not have the ability to do antigenic shifts between uh, it, both itself and uh, like say the same member species, like for example influenza does, uh, and also that it doesn't shed its antigen shells. Uh, like for example, I know certain types of triponosomes. I know that this this is a completely different branch on the tree of life, but it appears that like once you generate immunity against this virus, it will hold for a longer period of time. And that's very thankful if you are going to be working in a pandemic situation. Yeah, I mean, we should we should remember that pe- that researchers have been working on a vaccine for HIV for thirty years, and there's still not a working vaccine for HIV. So, I mean, we're we're lucky in the sense that this pandemic was caused by a virus we can reasonably handle. Um, we should also probably be lucky that it wasn't more deadly than it is, 
you could easily have imagined the virus that had did had a deadliness of say five percent, which would make would have made things even more acute. Um, I know one thing that is positive about this. This is extremely specific, but uh, the pandemic has sort of shown that you can do virtual meetings, uh, you can do virtual conferences, and it's not the best format. We were pretty harsh about it, but at the same time, it also enables things like inviting speakers from countries abroad. I mean, you can have someone who comes for, comes in from the U.S. because there's suddenly not a fifteen hundred dollars travel budget that you also have to take into account. Uh, and I think that's actually something that we could be better at utilizing moving forward as well. And also to use that to sort of increase the participation from low-income countries, for example. I think there's there's a lot of things that we could bring with us in terms of the way we do science, so to speak. Let's see. Finally, Sebastian, uh, what do you think about the outlook for 2021 now? I mean, I, I don't know what the like at least for Sweden, what the rate is of when people are going to get vaccinated. I don't know. Are we looking at summer, autumn, something? I think the the official estimate is by, by midsummer, so late June. I, I mean, I wouldn't really bet on Corona ever just vanishing, even if we have fully vaccinated. No, and I think I think we will have we will have the problem that even if Sweden and Western Europe um, are getting vaccinated by mid 2021 there's still going to be pockets that will remain unvaccinated for a very long time yeah. our best hope here is that the immunity holds for a long time or that or that booster shots will be very cheap or something like that because i i, I said as you said i don't imagine the virus going away anytime soon mm. what's really really encouraging uh, are these studies showing that even though the vaccines might not prevent transmission and mild disease to a full extent it basically prevents death to a hundred percent and it prevents the vast majority of serious illness that require uh, hospitalizations and if we can get away if we can avoid the deaths and avoid the hospitalizations that's the entire reason why we've closed down society right um so if we can avoid that part by having people vaccinated, then this becomes less worrisome than a flu. Uh, so that's a great sign, I think. On that note, if I may just stick in some some figures that I read, I think it was two days ago, that was released by the United Kingdom Health Department, that they looked at the transmissibility of this virus uh, in, in, in populations that had gotten the first shot of covid and it appeared that like the r value within those populations was about a third of the unvaccinated population so we of course you won't eliminate uh just by looking at the first the first dose here but it appears that by at least using the pfizer moderna and the oxford vaccines that they will dampen the transmissibility at least somewhat Based on yeah, the I think data. I think this touches a lot on something they talked about on Pod Save America of all places uh, earlier this week. That even a vaccine with fifty percent efficiency will lower the transmission rate by at least fifty percent, which means that if you had an R value of say just below two originally, you're down below one, and an R value below one 
means the virus dies out. Um, so, I mean, and I think they also made a very good point. Um, I mean, this is usually a political podcast, but at this time they did a really good public health point that whatever actions we take over the next six to ten weeks is going to be the most important actions we take during the entire pandemic because this is the first time when we can actually delay the transmission enough that we could get a sufficiently large portion of the vulnerable population vaccinated um so i mean if you if you think that i'm not gonna stand this anymore i'm just gonna go have to go out and start hugging people just please wait for another six to eight weeks because this is the critical time when we actually have control of the narrative moving forward. I mean, if, if I, I, I mean, I'm getting super tired of this myself, but I, I think that that was actually a very good point that we have a, a window of time now where it's super important that we actually keep to the restrictions because now is the time it makes a difference. Last question on this. Uh, when are we gonna when are we gonna do conferences again? Let's go around and everyone has to bet on when we can start doing physical conferences again. Twenty twenty two. You say twenty twenty two. January twenty twenty two, or? Yeah. Mabuba, what's your take? Mm, not at least this year. Is that January twenty twenty two? Not January, but maybe later. But in twenty twenty two, yeah, this year is <laughs> Sebastian, what do you think? Is the question specific this group when we will have conferences or like in general i don't know in general i think i mean i i think for a lot of workplaces that's gonna be happening this year i'm gonna bet i i know i mean i know people in work and they're like taking work flights and having physical meetings every day now so i mean autumn at least i, I guess maybe august september this year Back to like normal. You say August, September this year, Anna? I don't know. They really are serious about the vaccination passports or something like that. Everyone who has a vaccination passport can participate in the conference. So autumn, <laughs> maybe. Do you dare a month? <laughs> oh, it's hard. I actually believe in spring of 2022 more than autumn. But I, I'm going to stick my nose out and say that I think I think October this year. I think I think that's when when conferences are going to take physical form again, and where at least people in our like neighborhood. I don't know if we specific as this group will go on conference. It depends on what conferences there are as well. But I think October will will be a good will be a plausible time. Marcus, well, perhaps late this year, early next January, February, twenty twenty two, perhaps mm -hmm. with the uh, because I think even if you have uh, this vaccination. <clears throat> card or whatever uh, i i hope that scientific conferences will still be quite cautious especially since you can still get the the disease even if you are vaccinated and then you could spread that home to other people who might not be vaccinated so there's still a chance of spread yeah i, I mean i see what you mean it's just that I, i'm sort of seeing i'm sort of seeing how europe is ruling out their the vaccine program now and I, i'm 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 feeling that it, it's a long time until until the fall. It is, but then I, I, I feel like you have to think about sort of cost benefits. Yeah. What is the benefits of having a physical conference? Sure, there are great benefits of it, but if you instead can have a digital conference with perhaps not as many benefits, but 
fair, far reduced risk than perhaps that is the better option. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you have a point. You have a point there that there may be a window here where the the benefit of a conference is not sufficiently clear for enough people to go there and therefore it might not be an economic incentive to have a conference. So maybe the conferences might actually start later than other types of travel. That's a good point. Because you will have some countries with more spread and some countries with less. So will you then say, all right, we're going to have this conference I don't know, in the UK, but people from these countries are not allowed to attend. Yeah, that, that's, I, I imagine that will happen. I think it also depends on what country. Yes. Because let's say if the US has a lot of spread, would you then say, well, no American or US scientists will be able to come? There are quite a lot of them, a lot of them who are doing quite important work. So it would be hard to... You have to yeah, but you have to, you have to remember that it's not going to be just conferences. I mean, it's going to be every type of travel. And I mean, we, we want people to come to Europe from the US. So I guess it's much more likely that they will have some type of vaccination passport or that you have to, ta- you have, to have a negative test um, before, before traveling. I think that is kind of likely to happen. But I have a hard time seeing that they will keep saying that, oh, we're not going to do things the way we used to because there are still some countries where... I mean, I, I don't think that will happen, but I think I think this is this remains to be seen. I mean, it's not like I dismiss your arguments because I think they're relevant. It's just that I I, I think that this will happen quicker than we, thought, than, than we think. Should you go and then perhaps infect other people which will then not be able to work or will... Which, whose productivity will be severely reduced because they are sick, because someone felt that they could not stay at home when they had a cold. So the interesting thing here is that you, you are essentially having a discussion now that we never had this discussion before the COVID outbreak. No. Nobody, nobody talked about, like, should you stay at home if you have a cold? Because you might actually impact someone else's productivity. And I think it's really interesting how this mindset has changed uh, I mean, it, it's, it's going to be interesting just to see how long this this entire idea of keeping away from people while you're sick, how long that sticks. Because, I mean, for one, I think it's fantastic how healthy my kids have been despite going to preschool this year. Because people are actually keeping the kids home if they have a cold, which they wouldn't do during normal times. And that's that's fantastic. Uh and I think it's an interesting discussion to to be had. I think you're touching on a very, very interesting point here, which is that if we can keep some of the mindset around catching a disease during the pandemic, that might actually be really helpful moving forward. But we'll see. We'll see. I guess that all of this remains to be seen. Before we leave this question, I want to ask uh, Emilio and Jamila for a prediction on where we could go back to scientific conferences. Now you've heard all the arguments, so you have had time to make an opinion. I hope really, really soon. Uh, I, I actually attended a rather large webinar uh, some months ago. And uh, yeah, going back to physical is definitely something I'm looking forward to. Uh, maybe the future is some mix between the two. I hope later this year, maybe. Can we get a, can we get a month? Say November. November, yes. And Jamila? Uh, yeah, uh, I don't uh, think uh, this year will work. I think it will go to the next year, <laughs> next year, initial months, maybe. And uh, actually, I am eagerly waiting for uh, 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 for removing the obligations of uh, physical uh, contact because 
I am waiting for my uh, laboratory work to happen. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, I have to culture HPV restraints and come again to the department. <laughs> so, but but for my perspective, I think I think uh, for total eradication, it will go until next year. Next year, in Asian months, I think. Uh, because uh, in these strains, uh, they, they have ability to mutate uh, so rapidly. So maybe maybe because of the vaccinations, uh, they may work this year, but for the next year, I think there may be a need for um, vaccinations for different strains or mutated strains. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a point that might complicate things, and it's also something that sort of remains to be seen. So we have to acknowledge that there's a huge bunch of uncertainty around this, and there's a lot of things that could go wrong on the way, like if the vaccine rollout has hiccups, uh, or as you say, if, the, if there's a mutant that actually seems to escape immunity a lot better than, uh, than we thought. So it's time to discuss global change uh, and most prominently global warming. Uh, and let's begin in the end of uh, soil microbial communities. What happens to these communities when temperatures rise? This question may become more and more important as the world is heating up. And this was addressed in a recent study published in Soil Biology and Biochemistry in May last year. Uh, Emil, what do we know about how temperature affects microbial communities in soil? Well, Johan, it appears that uh, we, d we do know some things, but we don't know everything about it. In particular, the question that the authors of this paper, which is titled Temperatures Beyond the Community Optimum, Promote Dominance of Heat-Adapted Fast-Growing and Stress-Resistant Bacteria in Alpine Soils. Quite a mouthful, I know. So, first and foremost, the authors stated that the alpine regions stand to be one of the zones on the earth that would be the quickest to warm up in the event of a catastrophic global warming. Uh, and they stated that uh, if they are, according to the IPCC uh, interpretation of a worst outcome scenario, the, uh, what, they, what is called the nival zones will disappear from uh, the Alps. Uh, and the nival zone is defined as the snow above the tree lines in the regions of the mountains where there are no longer growing any trees. So they stated that as the earth is uh, warming, uh, you will see a change uh, in the geochemical background of these particular areas due to a warming uh, of these zones. And as they are warmed, they will uh, be introduced to uh, a new microbiome. Uh, and the thing that they stated is that they would see this transition from a nival zone to an alpine zone on these particular areas. And they wanted to see specific microbial transition that occurs in the metabolic output of these two zones, because they characterize the alpine zones, which contains the trees, as cofeotrophic microbial communities, which is microbial communities that has a high metabolism and can utilize lots of nutrients versus the 
oligotrophic microbial communities, which is more of the metabolic profiles of the nivosome. And they wanted to see that if there was a, a, um, a transition state between these two different metabolic profiles. And why this is particularly important is that in the oligotrophic uh, microbial communities, you see very low emissions of carbon dioxide compared to the coffeotrophic, which has a high emission of carbon dioxide. Uh, so they, they speculate that if you uh, get a transition of these microbial communities, then uh, you will get a feed-forward effect that will increase the amount of carbon dioxide being released from the microbial communities from these regions of the Earth. So they took four different soil samples, three from the alpine zones in different coordinates in Switzerland, and one from the nival zone in Switzerland. And they wanted to characterize how the microbial community responded to uh, a change in growth temperature. And they grow them at different temperatures from 4 to 35 degrees Celsius. And they wanted to quantify both abundance of the different bacteria using uh, 16S amplicon sequencing. And they also wanted to uh, quantify absolute bacterial growth. And they used a very interesting method of quantifying this, where they uh, quantified using tritated leucine. So tritated is uh, a leucine that is infused with tritium, which, which is a, a hydrogen atom infused with two extra neutrons. And what's so important with these particular tritated leucines is that they are radioactive. So you can follow the amount of growth because leucine uh, has been described as a proxy for all bacteria to use as an um, uh, as like a marker for growth. So if you can find more of this tritated leucine in the community, then you will have more uh, growth of bacteria amongst all communities. So they incubated them for one month and then they performed this analysis. They found that in, in the alpine soils, there was a specific uh, optimum of growth for the microbial communities at between 27 to 30 degrees Celsius. And once they've reached that plateau, almost all growth immediately stopped. And the only bacteria that was remaining were bacteria that was very good at tolerating heat stress. Uh, and they found uh, after more uh, microbial and taxonomic analysis that it was um, mainly three different families of bacteria and it was Burkholderia uh, and the big phyla of Para Burkholderia as well, uh, that family there. It was also the family of uh, Phenylobacterium. And it was a third family of bacteria, which I actually never had heard of before, called Pseudolabris. And the thing that was uh, so interesting about these particular three families was that as the authors hypothesized, uh, these, were, these three families were known for their carbon dioxide emissions. So just by increasing the growth temperature, uh, they found that the profile of the community completely changed to a very low emitting carbon dioxide uh, abundant bacteria in this microbial community and compared to a high emitting, uh, which of course has implications that as the Alps 
increase in temperature due to global warming, you will get the feed front effect that will increase the amount of carbon dioxide being emitted from the Alps. The, the focus of the paper is that they're looking at the effect of global warming and if it's going to increase uh, carbon oxide, uh, dioxide uh, release and all that. But did they actually find that global warming was a threat? I mean, you can make the arguments that these are analogous to global warming, because if you have soil grown under a month of this temperature, you will see the, the responses that will occur once these same regions are affected with this increase in growth temperature. But one thing that I actually thought was perhaps a bit uh, they should probably have a look at is that, at least to my understanding, they didn't analyze different seasonal change effects. Uh, so I don't know exactly how hot the Alps get. I think they have, no, I, I think they had a maximum, 27 was the maximum oh. it, they would reach. Oh, okay. Think about the Swedish, the Swedish mountains. I mean, you do get kind of summer-ish temperatures, but it's not uncommon that you have temperatures in the low okay. tens uh, throughout the summer. So I think from that perspective, I, I think 35 is... Yeah. Uh, that would be a very extreme temperature mm. in, the, uh, in the Alps. Mm. Uh, I don't know yeah. to what extent 25 would be extreme, though. 27 is the... 27 is the maximum they have like measured. So it, that is already very extreme. But it's probably a lot. I mean, the Alps include quite a, I mean, you have a lot of trees in the Alps. Well, so if you go above the tree line, it will most likely not even be nearly that hot. On the note that of Sebastian's uh, question, though, I just wanted to, I feel that there's like a little part missing here that they could do is that, yes, they see that they have an increase in bacteria that, uh, according to their metabolic profile, will increase the amount of carbon dioxide being produced by these microbial communities. But it feels like it would be quite a simple experiment to do as a follow-up, just to see like, okay, we have a heat-treated community and we have a control com uh, community, and just measure during like two weeks or something like that, just to see if it's actually affecting the amount of carbon dioxide being produced. Yeah, that's true. I think they, they did like, uh, they checked uh, like RNA copy numbers to see if there was more copy of crops instead. So I mean, I mean, I feel like doing just carbon dioxide yeah, exactly. would be easier to measure. Yeah. I mean, that's the one way you can do it. I think, I feel that you need to have both data because if you just have an increase in carbon dioxide and you don't get this uh, RNA, backing for it. I mean, like you don't know what potential factors it could be. Of course, then you need to, you know, do statistical analysis to confirm that there's at least somewhat of a correlation between these two. But uh, yeah, I feel that uh, just one of the analyses on their own wouldn't be sufficient. Bit, uh, one point that I found kind of like the same as I said before, almost, but I feel, I feel like maybe it's like a, they, they talk about the effect and they, and what you see is that like for four, nine, 15, and 25 degrees, there's like no difference at all. And then the difference is at like 35. And I feel that's kind of interesting in that the average temperature is around four to 11. And in like an extreme case, uh, global temperatures will rise by like six degrees. So, I mean, the difference between like five and 10 degrees is nothing in the experiment. 
So I feel like there's like no actual difference found in like the carbon dioxide release. Yeah, but but I mean that that sort of makes yeah. sense, right? Because if you have an at least to my understanding, you don't generally get a lot of you know active carbon dioxide for like microbial life to actually partake if you don't get up to these higher yeah. temperatures. Like a global uh, warming increase of like 30 degrees is kind of like that's. Uh, I think we would have other problems when we reach that temperature. Yeah, but I also think that you're touching on like a like a fun point that uh, you're saying that like within certain temperature intervals you are not sensitive on some community-specific phenotypes. But if you go higher up in temperatures, and you, if you were to like go to, uh, let's see, a, around 25, perhaps a bit lower than 25, and you just increase temperature there, you will get a complete collapse. And that is interesting because that is somewhat analogous to what I'm finding in other soil microbial communities in my work as well. Yeah. So I, I have a question here. You talked about a, some figure where you would be able to see the carbon dioxide release. I can't find that figure. Wouldn't that be a, a, a figure four? But that's the yeah. average RNA yes. copy numbers per genome. Yes, but that is that is how they measure the um, uh, copiotrophy because uh, uh, copiotrophic uh, microorganisms ah. has more RNA uh, copy genes. But it, yeah, but it, it's a little bit tricky because they, they use the R average RNA copy number uh, as a proxy for copiotrophs, which I think that makes sense. But then they use that in turn as a proxy for carbon dioxide release. And while that is yeah. kind of likely to be true, it's still a little bit of a leap of faith, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's what I meant, that it feels like one supplementary experiment would really tie this together. You just as measuring the amount of carbon dioxide being produced by these communities at different temperatures. I mean, it, yeah. Yeah, you could do that in the lab. It's hard to do it in the field, yeah. but <laughs> at the yeah, lab but scale, I mean, yeah. like all, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, all of this are already done in the lab mm-hmm. because they are in, they took the soils and incubated them in uh, cold and warm tem- uh, incubators. So. Yeah. And a seasonal study follow-up would also be kind of interesting. But this is yeah. So they only have like one month for a specific degree. Yeah. And I also feel like. The start of the experiment, they like took all the soil samples and then they put the soil samples in a like a freezer at four degrees for a year. Yeah, and I, feel, I, I, I wonder if that like affects the community somewhat because I don't know if like, the four four degrees not the, like the normal they, temperature for the Alps. Did they? Did, but did they do that before they started the experiment? Yes, one year in four degrees before one yeah. month uh, of the experiment yeah i think that it will have some effect especially if you have yeah uh, like bacteria that are faster growing that just yeah, yeah. Run out of their viability quickly quickly they, they give like the ranges for the soils and like one of the one type of soil is between a negative two and five c so that's like their maximum range and one starts at four and goes to 11 c exactly i still think their point stands though that you can see this effect of uh, transition from oligotrophy to coffeotrophy. But they don't really make a claim either that this is completely analogous to soil. At what, at what temperature did they start to see this increase metabolism, did you say? Uh, if I understood it correctly, it was at 25 degrees. All right. I think it is 27, because, I mean, because they have an optimum at 27. Because, no. 
because that is yeah. very high. So I'm thinking, I mean, the, where, the, where the tree line sort of turns into the non-tree line, I mean, that, that's a huge difference. So isn't there more likely that there is something else that is causing this difference in metabolism then? Because I'm thinking, if you think about the microbial community that lives below the tree line, you, have, you can have quite a lot of vegetation. Uh, both trees and other things, you have a lot more carbon in the ecosystem. And that, that then dies and then you have more animals. You have a lot more nutrients. If you think about above the tree line, I would guess that you have more erosion. You don't have too much nutrients or carbon added to that environment. So to me, it's not very surprising that the metabolism would be lower where you have a lot less uh, things to metabolize. And I'm thinking since the increase in metabolism was so high, we had to have such a huge temperature difference. I don't really think that explains it. And I don't think it's very surprising because what you do when you add more temperature is that you add more energy to the system. And then, of course, you will have an increase in the bacteria who are the best at utilizing that energy. So, of course, you will have a shift in, uh, in taxonomy. And of course, the, the bacteria that would be more efficient at utilizing that sort of energy will have a higher metabolism. So to me, these results aren't too surprising. Yeah, I agree. But it's no, I, I think I, I think we all yeah. agree with you, Marcus. It's not it's not really surprising, but at the same time, it's interesting that they sometimes research is interesting because it is not surprising. If you see what I mean, it's it's easy to explain why this happens. Um, but at the same time, if you don't do the experiment, you don't know if the predictions sort of hold true or if there's something that is something that is complicating that. And it seems like there's not a lot of things to complicate that. Uh, just another note, I'm going to go back a little bit to this, what happens if you put things in a, in a fridge for a very long time. Uh, yes, I think there could be effects of that. But if you actually look at their plots, these um, where they look at the community structure in the multidimensional plots, you can see that the original sampling location is what separates the samples the most rather than the different temperatures until they get to this plus 35 temperature, which is also a very, very big separator. So I think um, even though there, there's probably some effect of keeping these communities in the refrigerator for a year, that effect is still minor compared to the original differences between the sampling sites. Yeah. And that's really clear in these plots because you can see the variability with, within the sample size being really small. And I think that's a good point to make so that we don't make a, make a hen out of a feather here. If the temperature is about 27 degrees above the tree line in the Alps yeah. for a long period of time, it will release a lot of carbon. Yeah. I, think, I think I agree with you there, Sebastian, that perhaps it's not super likely that that will happen. The maximum temperature has been 27 so if we have a six degree increase and it adds to that 27, then maybe like if there is a 32 degree like week, maybe that will like cause a big problem. It's not that likely that you're going to have these kind of extended periods at 35 degrees, at least not during my lifetime in the Alps. And I think to some extent, it's kind of reassuring that you don't see these i mean you see some effects on 25 degrees but the effect seems to be pretty small because that seems to be the level where i would expect that you would have extended periods of time in 
in these regions that you might get up to 25 degrees and that might actually be extended for a long period of time. What could be interesting to say to look at what though is what happens if you have a few days of 35 degrees? Is a few days enough to cause these changes? And that's something that is a little bit missing from from the from the study. I mean, because they do this kind of long-term experiments where you have an extended heat period. But I guess it's more likely that you would have a few days uh, of high temperature. Do you, Emil, remember like the what the the time range was until that egg saw the like the big thirty-five degree result? Because at least like the study is a one month. So I mean, yeah, a month is not a big range for. Uh, My understanding is that they only analyzed after one month, yeah. and they compared the different temperature samples uh, and the different uh, sampling sites. But I don't think that they did like a chronological time scale of like at eight months we saw this profile at sorry at eight days we saw this profile at fifteen days. We, I don't I didn't find it at least. No, exactly, because that that could be like an interesting follow up study also. Yeah, because yeah, definitely. If it means, I mean, they could be a very quick community uh, change in the soils, right? So, I mean, if it takes a week of this temperature to, like, it release a lot of carbon, then that could be a problem. Yeah. yeah, and that might be much more relevant than looking at a month at a very high temperature. Yeah, I'm also thinking how relevant, if, if, you, if, you, if you look at this from sort of a global perspective, what effect is, well, I guess there's quite a big naval zone in the world. But I'm also thinking how, how this could potentially affect climate change. I, I know we have a lot of small sources and few big sources. But I mean, I think there was someone who did some calculations of some people planted 20 million trees and said, oh, we did a huge thing for the climate. And he calculated it and it's nothing. It's not even a drop in the ocean. So I'm thinking sort of proportionally would this even have an effect? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that they make a claim on how much of the total uh, carbon dioxide emissions are based on these particular uh, microbiomes, but I can't imagine that it is much compared to uh, like the uh, wet wetlands and uh, yeah. and the swamps and stuff like that. They don't have like a specific, this is how much carbon will be released. But they at least they start they start the study with yeah twenty five percent of all of the Earth's surface is mountains. So I mean it is a, like a large area at least. Yeah, that is affected. I don't know though. I mean this is this is a study that is made on mountainous communities. But I mean, why is there a reason to expect that not other type of soil communities would also follow the same kind of trend like if you increase the temperature you get more copiotrophic and therefore you can have more releases and if you look at the amount of soil globally that's a shit ton of soil soil and if if that's an effect that would also extend into say um, marine communities it's easy to look at this as a very isolated problem because that's how they describe it in this study but i also think that you could potentially extrapolate and get kind of big effects in the end. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely draw analogies between soil communities, like this soil community and soil communities in general. But I think that this community in particular is sensitive to this this effect because it is so uh, uh, 
in like the domain right between like super cold and like these um, higher-ish temperatures. On the other hand, when it comes to this, uh, to the marine communities, you would also have to factor in what warming would do to um, cyanobacteria, <laughs> who would, I mean, who would bind the carbon as well. So there's a. I guess this is what makes climate change predictions really hard. On that note, if going back to the discussion of how much carbon dioxide is actually going to be released uh, with the increase in alpine temperature, wouldn't one also expect that the like tree line would move upwards into the mountains as the temperature rises? So at the same time where you have this increased release of carbon dioxide, over time, years, it would also sequester because there's soil. I don't know if it's like all mountain is covered with soil. I can name, I mean, just looking at the pictures I've seen from like the Himalayas and stuff like that, I, there's no soil on the peak on Himalaya, for example. Uh, but I mean, I'm, I can imagine like as, as the tree line grows, you will get more deposition of uh, plant matter, which will increase the soil line, which will then, yeah. So it might, I can imagine that it will sort of creep up. Climate change is actually changing the lines of uh, vegetation in Sweden. For example, the, the leaf trees are creeping upwards and so are the, the um, pine trees are encroaching more and more onto the, the more barren lands. The tigers is expanding northwards. Yeah, I can confirm the same. Mm. We know that uh, in Russian Arctic, they observe the same kind of pattern and high altitudes are very similar in terms of climate to high mountains. It's no trees growing there, but uh, in like recent 10 years, you can see that a small pine trees, they managed to come more north and north. So soon they're going to be a forest too. Widening the perspective a bit and looking beyond just global warming, there are several other environmental changes associated with human activities that may also affect microbes in soil. And these global change factors were investigated in a meta-analysis published in Nature Communications last June. Mabuba, which of these global change factors have the largest impacts on soil microbial communities? Yeah, not only global warming is involved in microbial diversity change, but also there are some other factors that are thought to have significant role in diversity change. And today I'm going to discuss about some of these global change factors and how they are related with this microbial diversity. The article that I'm going to discuss today is entitled Meta-Analysis of the Impacts of Global Change Factors on Soil Microbial Diversity and Functionality. It is kind of general claim that human-induced global change factors has the capacity to decline the microbial diversity in soil. But it is not that clear how these GCFs mediate the change. So for this study, the authors performed a meta-analysis of more than 1,200 global change factors experimental observation, and they tried to capture 
uh, an overall scenario of microbial diversity change. And for this, they calculated the alpha diversity, which, is, which means the number of species present in a community. They calculated the beta diversity, that means the magnitude of similarities in species composition in different communities. And they also focused on community structure. For this whole study, they considered a spatial statistical analysis, which is called a response ratio. First, they take the ratio of uh, a treated condition versus the control condition, and they take the natural log of this ratio. So this is the response ratio. And they calculated the response ratio for richness. That means what is the number of species in a site or shallow and both abundance and the evenness is considered. For alpha diversity, if the response ratio is zero, that means there is no change of the diversity. If the response ratio is positive, that means uh, there is an increase of diversity. And if the value is negative, that means the diversity is decreased. And for the beta diversity, if the ratio is less than zero, that means there are lower diversity and value higher than zero indicates higher diversity. And for the community structure, if the response ratio is zero, that means GCF or global change factor has no role in community structure. And a higher positive values means community structure is changed. Several global change factors, for example, climate warming, altered precip precipitation, phosphorus addition, increase the alpha diversity. However, Nitrogen addition decreased the diversity greatly. And whenever it is on that nitrogen is alone or with the phosphorus or with potassium, in all cases, the alpha diversity is decreased. Another interesting observation they found in the study that is the relationship between the land use change and the microbial diversity change. A couple of previous studies demonstrated that land use change is the major driving factor for diversity decline in soil. But here, the authors found a totally different scenario. They observed that uh, the land use change actually increased the alpha diversity. And, and whenever the diversity is changing, like diversity, uh, diversity is increasing or decreasing, almost all cases, the, the community structure is changed. And I think this is logical because if the diversity is increased or decreased, surely that structure of the community will be changed. Global change factors actually have little negative effect on microbial diversity. Uh, then they wanted to know actually what are the main drivers for the change of the alpha diversity. And they found that the pH condition is the major driver for the change in alpha diversity response. When the soil is acidic, there is kind of change in the microbial diversity as well as the microbial interaction inside the soil. So maybe due to this acidic condition, uh, the, the species living in, the, in that soil is destroyed or damaged because higher, um, higher acidic condition can disrupt the structural structure of protein and uh, the membrane-bound proton pump. Disruption of these uh, proton pumps might uh, affect the total diversity of the microorganism. Uh, they also wanted to know the relationship of the alpha diversity with the biomass and the functional response of the ecosystem. 
And uh, from this study, they found that alpha diversity cannot actually mirror the microbial bias and the functionality in the ecosystem, whereas community structure and microbial biomass are correlated with ecosystem functionality. Like higher the biomass, the higher the functionality is. And this is logical because when we have higher biomass, maybe there is uh, higher microorganisms who are involved in biogeochemical cycling. So there is higher functionality. So overall, they concluded that uh, these human-induced global change factors actually have not that much effect on microbial diversity declination. And pH condition actually is the main drivers for microbial diversity in yeah microbial diversity in the soil. Yeah, I think I think it's kind of fascinating that they that you find this uh, pH pH um, that they find that pH is a main driver of the diversity because this really echoes um, the nature paper I was involved in, in three years ago with Mohammed Barama as first uh, as first author, uh, where the main driver of diversity in that case also was pH. Uh, and I remember that this you had things feeding into that, like the mean precipitation, for example, uh, that also fed into the pH. But in the end, it was sort of p- the pH that made the the big difference in terms of uh, species diversity. And I think that's, that's, that's very interesting that they find the same thing looking across a lot of studies, that this is still the main driver despite changing temperatures and despite changing nutrient availability it's still ph that it comes back to in the end especially for driving diversity in community structures i think that's that's fascinating just from my own point of view uh, having having looked at similar things in the past the only thing i think is a little bit peculiar in this paper is the the way that they describe this change in community structure it took me a while to actually digest that from the method section, but apparently what they're looking at is sort of if if it has a positive value, it sort of means that the community structure between the treated group and the control group is larger than the differences within the groups. Um, so I think, I haven't thought this through completely, but I think what that would mean is that it should essentially always be positive. It's, it's very unlikely that the treatment would sort of make the groups more, more similar to each other than they were from the beginning. So um, I think it's not unexpected that they, they see that basically all the response ratios for community structures is positive. The null hypothesis might still be that you don't see any difference, uh, so they should be around zero. It's probably still some type of, some type of effect, but I think it's, it's actually interesting to see that the main take-home message across this entire paper is regardless of which factor you change it mostly remains the same in soil communities there's a few exceptions to that but in terms of alpha diversity there is very little happening for most of these factors in terms of beta diversity it's very little happening for most of these factors there's a few uh, i think Warming has a very, very slight effect. Phosphor addition and uh, nitrogen addition has very slight effects. But it's small effects, and the variability is huge between the studies. So I... And, and I mean, they, they touch upon this as well, that in some studies you have seen that there is a strong effect, and in some studies you have seen no effect and even a negative effect. And when you take everything together, it actually seems like a lot of this is 
condition specific. If you look globally at all the global change factors, not a lot is happening. Yes, they also mentioned in the paper that uh, that the result they got actually it is not consistent among the experiment because different lab got different results. So I think this is kind of tricky to handle this type of data to come to a conclusion. Yeah. Yeah, but I think I think it's a, from the standpoint of data. I think it's a very well made study. They've collected a lot of data. They've looked at different variables. They've tried to actually make them comparable between studies. The method the methodology looks sound. So I, I'm pretty impressed by this work, but I also think that it's important that you do studies like these when the main result is basically maybe there's not a lot going on here and there's just a lot of variability. Uh, I mean, that type of result is really important, I think. One note, though, on how this paper is written. One of the things I really hate when people do in papers, that is to introduce a lot of abbreviations and you use them extensively. Um, so instead of writing, say, a change in nitrogen level, you absolutely must use N. And that's not the worst one. I mean, N is pretty common, but I had a trouble when it's like, they refer to NXPPT plus in the text. And I'm like, wait, what was that? Because they introduced that somewhere early in the text. And they did this over and over again with different abbreviations, which I, I don't really see the point. You could use the words and it would have been a lot easier to read. Aside from this, it was pretty easy to read despite being data heavy. And that's a good, that's a very good job. The other thing that I think is interesting here is that they relate this to macroecology studies where you've looked at, for example, the impact of climate change on plants. And there you do see, especially when it comes to the land use change, you do see these pretty big effects on plant diversity and on animal diversity. And it's interesting from from that point of view that in this case, you don't really see that much of a change in the soil community. So what that sort of tells us that there is a decoupling between the macroecology and the effects on global change on that and the microecology of the microbes, because in that case, there might not be the same big effect. And instead, pH becomes a major driver. Um, at the same time, I wonder what would happen if you start combining these two so that, so that if you have a big change in land use, which affect the plant species coming in over time, wouldn't that also have an effect on the microbial communities indirectly? Uh, and that's something that I don't think that they, they don't really go into it in the paper. And I guess it's because it's simply too complex. I mean, you would have to have really long-term studies to look at that. But I guess that's that might be the overlooked effect that they don't touch upon in this paper. Intuitively, I think if you change temperature or added this chemical and this chemical, then this bacteria perhaps would gain an advantage that it wouldn't take so much to change this whole community and the function of it. So I, I'm sort of I am very surprised that the community is so robust. I think you're you're touching upon a very good point here, and that's something actually something they they also touch upon in this paper that if you look at macro animals and plants in the communities they make up, you only have a few players of each kind, uh, maybe just a single player of each kind. And that means that if you lose diversity in that community, you take away important functions. But one theory, and I have to say that this is not proven in any way, but one theory around microbial communities is that they are so diverse 
that a loss in biodiversity does not necessarily translate to a loss of function because there are so many other players that can step in and take that role or take a similar role or maybe an entire consortium of microbes that when the temperature change, they step in and start performing a very similar function. So it's hard to at least measure the functional loss of microbial communities when they start to get very complex. I mean, and of course, like this is, of course, in contrast into uh, model microbial communities where the diversity isn't as large as it is in uh, isolated microbial communities as well, where perhaps there are like individual pockets of niches that can be filled by other species. But for example, in Thor, there are no extra pockets available to fill in that niche if it is lost. So yeah, I think this is where I wanted to go with my with my reasoning as well. I just forgot what the, what the intermediate step I wanted to touch upon was. What what could be a problem though is that even if you overall don't see a interaction loss or a functional loss in a microbial community, I mean there might be a tipping point where you actually remove something that is really important for the community function and where it sort of tumbles into a completely different state and. One of the hypotheses around dysbiosis in the human microbiome is that you could have these kind of situations where you're near a tipping point because you have maybe just a single player that would perform the necessary function. And at that point, it looks like you have a healthy microbiome. But then maybe you take an antibiotic. That species that was super important for this specific function is getting is lost and you'd sort of tumble into this dysbiotic state because you passed the tipping point, um, which could be an explanation to why people are so randomly affected by antibiotic exposure, for example. Um, th- again, I have to say this is a speculative theory. There's, I have seen actually no solid evidence that this would be the case, but I think it's a reasonable hypothesis given that even in a very diverse community, you have to have certain players that are very important, even though they are more rare. And of course, if we compare to Thor again, which is a model community, each member sort of has this central role and modifying the interactions between them means that you're going to have functional loss. And that's, I think that's actually one of the benefits of using a model community because when you start playing with that community and taking out specific functions you will actually see functional losses while if we did the same thing for example introducing a lot of transposer mutants into a natural community it's kind of unlikely that that will have a big effect so it's going to be hard to tease out that this specific gene was really important for interactions because you haven't even seen that the interaction was lost it may be useful to think about how to prevent future pandemics and in the context of global warming this is not great. Potentially pathogenic microbes could be released from frozen ice sheets and permafrost and wreak havoc on ecosystems and perhaps even cause epidemics. But to what extent is such resurrection actually a reality? Could this all be a myth? Anna, could you enlighten us on what the science says on this subject? Yeah, thank you, Johan. So we talked already today about the fact that increasing temperature is one of the immediate effects of global change. 
and it leads to melting of ice on our planet and as a consequence rising sea levels and more frequent and intense weather conditions as well as weather events as well as as a consequence loss of habitats for human and natural wildlife populations however we rarely think what has been preserved in this ice for thousands of years so marcus and me we found a review paper from 2020 published in the science of the total environment uh, with the title resurrection of inactive microbes and resistance present in the natural frozen world reality or myth and we thought it brings uh, a lot of interesting uh, examples and questions that we thought would be uh, interesting to discuss in our podcast about 30 percent of earth's surface is composed of ice which is collectively called cryosphere so in other words cryosphere is a water that is trapped in a solid face and represented by icebergs ice sheets permafrost and glaciers and there is an increasing evidence that cryosphere also acts as a reservoir for ancient microorganisms and if you think about that this environment has a perfect conditions for preserving microorganisms for a really long time, like low temperatures, low or absent oxygen, darkness. So keeping the microorganism alive for millions of years. Pathogenic microorganisms that could have been infecting uh, human beings and animals might be preserved in this ancient ice and permafrost layers. And when ice melts, they can be brought back and possibly open this Pandora box of new infections. So what would happen if we were suddenly exposed to bacteria and viruses that have been absent for thousands of years or that we never met before? And what is the reality of this threat and to what extent we should be worried? I would like to start with uh, an example. So in 2012, a group of researchers, they published a paper that shows the result of resurrection of 30,000 year old fruit or seed that has been preserved in Siberian permafrost uh, of a plant. So they managed to successfully brought back to life a fertile plant that has been dormant for 30,000 years. So if a plant can be regenerated, why not virus, a bacterium or another parasite? There are several studies in the field of resurrection ecology, I even didn't know such exist, that uh, show that microbes can survive in normal stage for a really long period of time and also can be revived. So in 2005, NASA scientists successfully revived bacteria that has been in frozen pond in Alaska for 32,000 years. And these microbes called uh, Carnobacterium pleistocenium, they got frozen during the Pleistocene period when woolly mammals still roamed the Earth. So once the ice melted, they began swimming around, seemingly unaffected. Two years later, scientists managed to revive an 8 million year old bacterium that had been lying dormant in the ice in the glacier in the Antarctica. As the Earth warms and more ice will melt, it will expose more uh, deeper and all the layers of the ice. So as an example, in the August of 2016, in the tundra in the Siberia, there were several people who were hospitalized, uh, infected by anthrax. And scientists discovered that most probably the anthrax comes from the reindeer 
that got frozen in the permafrost around 75, 75 years ago and stayed frozen until the heat wave in the summer of 2016 when the permafrost thawed. So this exposed reindeer corpse was infected with anthrax and it got contaminated nearby water and soil. So as a result, more than 2,000 reindeers um, that were grazing nearby became infected as well as several people. So this example might be just the tip of the iceberg since melting permafrost can also uncover graves of people who died many centuries ago from Spanish flu, bubonic plague and other pathogens that we thought we concurred and they never come back. More and more bacteria are becoming resistant now due to the acquisition of resistance genes. But resistance genes are, as a concept, is nothing new. Uh, I saw some suggestions that anti the concept of antibiotics is as old as two to 40 million years old. And as you know, when you apply an antibiotic to a bacteria, you impose selection pressure for it uh, to become resistant towards it. So we can assume that resistance to antibiotics is as old as antibiotics themselves. So this has resulted in researchers finding bacteria resistant to a whole range of antibiotics in the environment that has never been touched by human-produced antibiotics before. And the Chrysler is no exception. Uh, so this review brings up quite a lot of studies that have used either a culturable bacteria approach or a metagenomic approach to look at the resistance profile in some cryospheric environments. All these studies combined found resistance to a whole range of antibiotics, beta-lactams, chloramphenicol, tetracyclines, tetramycin, quinolones, and more. Some bacteria were resistant to one antibiotic, while others were multi-resistant. So I think the take-home message from this part is that the cryosphere is quite large and diverse reservoir of antibiotic resistance genes, both in dormant bacteria, but also perhaps uh, in free-floating DNA. Uh, and the fact that parts of the cryosphere is melting could mean that a large part of this both new and ancient genetic material could be released into the environment. Today, around 10 to the power of 17 to 10 to the power of 21 viable microbes are being released from environmentalized which is equivalent to around 10 to the power of 3 to 10 to the power of 7 metric tons of microbial mass. So what potential consequences could this have? But the authors suggest that when this big release of glacial water reaches into the downstream rivers and other environments where there is current bacteria living, this could create a sort of a soup of bacteria, resistance genes, virulence factor, and other genes from both old and current bacteria. Add some horizontal genes factor this mix, and the authors suggest that this could lead to bacteria that were not, are not resistant today, could acquire resistances. Non-pathogenic bacteria could acquire virulence factors and other traits that could turn into pathogens, et cetera, et cetera. So this could, according to the paper, uh, be very dangerous because millions of people are interacting with this water from drinking and agriculture and industrial purposes. Uh, and the second problem is uh, related to the environment. This massive microbial mass, or I should say this increase in massive microbial mass, could lead to a growth spurt of these bacteria, which could then consume a lot of oxygen in fish habitats possibly extending the ocean's bed zone. 
which are areas where microorganisms has consumed most of the oxygen. And in most cases that I read of, mostly due to um, eutrophication, which is you, you add a whole bunch of nutrients to the water and the bacteria will consume the nutrients, consume the oxygen in the process. And that kills a lot of the wildlife for a lot of the fish. And then we have number two, which is if more environmental bacteria are picking up these resistant genes, that could affect microbial competition, potentially disturbing the microbial ecosystems. And this is a phrase they use. I think I would like to discuss this perhaps at the end of our discussion. Uh, moreover, the release of such microorganisms would disrupt the optimal structure and function of indigenous microbial diversity in particular ecosystems. So I think Anna and Aina presented the topic from this review paper's point of perspective. And I think they have a perspective that I sometimes agree with, sometimes disagree with. I, I don't see a reason why bacteria that has been frozen for thousands or even millions of years should be more resistant to antibiotics than environmental bacteria we see today. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I hope they don't make that argument anywhere in the paper. I think the the concern taking the paper's standpoint here or arguing for the same thing, uh, I think the concern is rather that there might be different forms of resistance than that there would be lots of it. Um, and I think that's a more relevant issue to discuss because I don't I think it's we can essentially all agree on that the level of resistance, there's no reason that that should be greater just because bacteria has been frozen for a long time. But maybe there could be another diversity. I think that's that's potentially a more interesting question. Well, I haven't read a lot of papers, but I found one that actually analyzed samples uh, from uh, different ancient reservoirs. And what they found is that if you search for antibiotic-resistant genes and, of and decrease the similarity threshold, then you will identify a lot of different variants. And that might be the diversity that we are sort of should be concerned with. On the other hand, that's, I guess, I, that guess, I guess that's true also for going out to a non-ancient soil and start looking. I mean, yeah. if, you, if you expand your expand your scope that you're looking and don't have a very stringent identity cutoff, I think you will essentially, it's, it's one of these, search and you shall find situation. Yeah, but if you consider that the more variants you would have in the environment, the more probable some of them would work against uh, one or another type of antibiotic. So by melting ice and increasing the number of potential variants, we maybe expand the pool that bacteria can use. But why should the why should there be a bigger sort of diversity or how, how probable is it? that the bacteria in this ice will have resistance, some sort of resistance gene that is not, um, that doesn't exist anywhere else. Because I think we need to look at this from a global perspective as well, that a lot, at least quite a bit of sort of clinical resistance genes can, can spread via human beings from place A to place B. So if, if you think about people moving around the world and the spreading of resistance genes that way, I, I, don't know why melting glacier water would be such a big problem. Yeah, especially if you think about uh, your one's previous publications when thinking about antibiotic resistance genes in this Indian lake. I don't see that like if you were to 
have spillover events from if you compare this ancient glacier to this Indian lake. I've, I've, I feel that this Indian lake would be a lot worse in that case uh, when it comes to spreading antibiotic resistance genes. Yeah, I mean, again, I guess the argument is that in the Indian lake example, we detect a huge bunch of known resistance genes. So that's resistance genes that are already circulating in human pathogens. Um, And as we argue about what the real risks with environmental antibiotic resistance may be, the real threat there might be not the variants that we already know about, because they are already in pathogens. We are not going to get rid of them in any easy way. Um, But it might be that there's novel variants in there that hasn't sort of made the jump to human pathogens. And I think this is going back to the question here. Could there be variants that have been, for some reason, frozen in glaciers for a long time um, that would actually be prone to make the jump to a human pathogen? But again, open question. There's a lot of things we don't know here. And, and they say that, well, you could have a non-pathogenic bacteria, which will then receive a bunch of virulence factors from other genes or from other bacteria. And then it might also get some uh, antibiotic resistance genes from some other bacteria. But where is the selection pressure to keep all this and then to get into a human being and then to get the proper virulence factors to, to, actually, um, to actually infect the human being and then also to get the proper antibiotic resistance genes, which will confer resistance to the antibiotics we will prescribe for that particular infection. The thing is, for a bacterium to actually keep a piece of external DNA... It has to be useful in some way, right? Otherwise, it's just a fitness cost. So I think what Marcus was bringing up here is actually really important. Uh, there's a lot of things that would have to come together in order for um, a bacterium to acquire virulence, relevant antibiotic resistance, and do this in, in an environment which is void of any antibiotic selection pressure or any selection pressure for virulence factors relevant to humans. So I think that entire argument, in my mind, that seems overstated. Some of us are involved in the Embark program. So Embark aims to establish a baseline level of AMR in the environment and uses it to predict future emerging threats. So if this cryosphere now is a source of novel potentially threats, even though we don't know exactly how dangerous they are, which is impossible to know. Should this, do you think this should be included in the current uh, risk assessment schemes? It depends on what you mean. Um, I think it should be included in the same way as we are now trying to deal. I mean, I don't, I don't want to get too much into details here because this is still a bit up in the air how to do this. But one of the subtracts in, within the Embark program is to try to figure out how to manage risks associated with emerging antibiotic resistance. Um, and antibiotic resistance emergence is something that is inherently very hard to quantify. It's a little bit like, you know, lightning strikes. You know it will happen, but you don't know where and you don't know when until it basically happens. The risk here is that there is something that we don't know about. So it's a really like an unknown unknown in a way. Um, that would be able to come out from the eyes and then multiply in some sense so that it could become a human health threat. And my gut feeling is that the likelihood for that happening is overall 
low. The thing is that things with a low probability do happen sometimes. I think, I mean, and sometimes these events have big consequences. And I think we can agree on that. The probability that a bat virus would somehow would like sort of go through a pangolin and then emerge at some kind of local fish market, that seems like nuts. Why would that happen? Still, we are now sitting here one year later due to a virus that seemed to have emerged in pretty much that way. Taking every piece together, this sounds like something that is really unlikely to happen. But those, these things do happen. And we know that this seems to be, not exactly this process, but similar processes seem to have happened in the past. Given that we know that these events are unlikely, but at the same time due to the scale of things, likely to occur with some frequency, how do we ensure that we don't provide the conditions where such an event would lead to vast consequences. And this goes back to what you said about selection pressures. I mean, if we make sure that there is not a lot of environmental arenas with a strong selection pressure for antibiotic resistance, that's a very good start. Because I I think this is quite similar to what, what you said. So if you have, I mean, bacteria act or genes act a particular way in a particular genetic context. They might act differently in a different um, genetic context. So if you have a bacteria with resistance that it gains in a human being, a a pathogen, and then that that spreads because there's selection pressure to have it because there's a lot of antibiotics because the patient is being treated. And then then the bacteria keeps this resistance unit and it spreads via feces or whatever to other people. What is the probability that a gene from an environmental bacteria with a different genetic context could jump in and have a smaller fitness cost, I guess, because you do not use all the antibiotics for all bacteria. You use certain antibiotics for certain bacteria, and some are broad spectrum or some are more smaller spectrum. So I'm, I'm just thinking what the probability from sort of evolutionary fitness cost is that a gene would spread from an environmental bacteria to a pathogen. Yes, I think you're I think you're right that it's more likely that the pathogen would develop its own resistance gene or acquire it from some bacterium that is living more nearby, right? Um, Like a human-associated bacteria. I think at the same time, what is key here is that if you have an environmental bacteria that has a resistance gene that is very efficient at doing its job, even though it is costly to carry it, that might still outcompete any variant that the pathogenic bacterium might carry in the right settings. And the right settings here is, of course, exposure to the relevant antibiotic. So the article claims that release of this large number of microorganisms could have a large impact on microbial ecosystems, changing metabolic pattern, or as they said, it might demolish the fish habitats and aggravate the ocean's dead zone. But is this feasible? Because we've been talking a bit about the robustness of microbial communities, that it can be hard to uh, affect them with, let's say, temperature or adding nitrogen. But how about adding different species to microbial community? Do you think this could have any effect? I think this this could have a very strong effect, or it could have no effect whatsoever, depending on what species and what different invasion factors that these bacteria could be uh, having. I mean, like, for example, if you have a bacteria that... 
uh, let's say hypothetically creates a death factor that kills every other uh, community member that isn't itself. If that invades the community, then that will completely destroy that community. However, if it has a nice, you know, a friend factor associated with it where it can just like glide in and you know like yeah come on let's be friends and you know maybe we can create some cool community phenotype then i mean then it won't matter i think it very much depends on the yeah on the background of the bacteria itself yeah because i, I feel like this uh, as the glaciers have been releasing this type of bacteria into the environment for quite some time i'm not sure exactly if this would have a big effect. And then we have, I'm just a bit uncertain about this dead zone in the ocean, because my understanding of life in the ocean is that it is limited by the nutrients. So if you add a whole bunch of bacteria, but not a whole bunch of nutrients, then they can't really do that much. The thing we shouldn't forget is that by melting ice, it's not only bacteria that are dropped in the ocean. It's a lot of organic matter also that was accumulated over many years. And this is the additional sort of nutrients we are talking about. So most probably with uh, increased melting, you will get something like a eutrophication effect, actually, where it will be so much nutrients available and temperature going to be rising perfect conditions for blooms and uh, increased biomass production, which is already observed actually in, in the Arctic areas because, yeah, there is reduction in ice, more solar energy, everything is uh, happy. <laughs> so, Anna, a question on that note. Um, I guess in these frozen ice sheets that are melting now, a lot of the bacteria in there must be dead which means that they would provide pretty good food for other bacteria as well. I mean, along the same the same lines, really. And I remember being sort of surprised by how much nutrients apparently were available in autoclaved soil. But thinking about it, it's not that weird, because you, autoclaving it, I just killed off a lot of bacteria that become food for new bacteria, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And I think that's... It goes along along the same lines. Is that something we should be more worried about than the live bacteria in the glaciers? Mm, that's a very good question. <laughs> Another thing that related a little bit to this paper, I mean, we've been discussing a lot about bacteria and uh, antibiotic resistance. And I, I think that judging on my experience in that area, I think that risk might actually be a bit overstated compared to the risk just in general of the environment. I just run the numbers here. And I think even if you have these releases, which sounds really extreme, of 10 to the power of 21 bacteria every year from these ice sheets, that still just occupies 0.000001% of the bacteria in the world. So it's a very... In one sense, it's also a minute fraction. And then you compare that to how much bacteria that are soil bacteria, for example. And that's also pretty big. That's a much bigger fraction in a sense. Um, so I, I feel like the AMR risk here might be a little bit overstated. But one thing that I think is a very real risk is the one that you talked about in the beginning here. Like anthrax getting re revived so that the the ice sheets basically become sort of a delayed transmission route of diseases that we think we have control of. Um, how do you feel about that, Anna and Emil? I mean, 
it seems that it's not improbable, at least. So it's not as non, it's a non-zero probability since we observed the cases. Uh, and uh, I don't think, <laughs> yeah. it seems like it's not only anthrax that is preserved in the eyes. So, and we don't know yet what else. I think it has to be a very specific type of, uh, of pathogen that can, you know, actually, because the thing with anthrax is that they can, given the correct uh, transition into a very stressful state, they can form spores. And these spores have longevity of like... Forever. Pretty, yeah, forever, pretty much. Uh, and they can withstand a lot of different stressors as well. So the thing is like, if you think about like anthrax, it's a very... It's a, it's a pathogen that's very well suited for that type of like emergence. But mostly when I'm thinking of like diseases that we fear could emerge in a way again. I mean, for me, there are two big ones. It's uh, smallpox and it's uh, Yersinia pestis in, uh, in Europe. Yersinia pestis is a bacteria and smallpox is a virus. Smallpox is not uh, well suited for preservation in that case because it can't form this structure that allows them to be preserved they will pretty much just sit inside their capsule or whatever structure they are using to to spread i don't actually know uh, but yersinia pestis i don't actually think can form spores either so that means that even in that case you you need to have a very specific type of uh, infectious agent uh, and in the case of anthrax i don't think it is <laughs> is uh, Bacillus anthrax is a sequester of antibiotic resistance genes because my understanding is that it is very susceptible to antibiotics. I think it's pretty susceptible. I have to say that I'm not. I haven't looked into that specifically. I hadn't had any reason, but I, I, I mean the Bacillus species overall are not super resistant to antibiotics. Yeah, but I think one thing. We could think about when it's about reemergence is that uh, the, the, if it reemerges, it's most likely older than 70 years, meaning that it was a big problem before we used antibiotics. And that if we have a pathogen, I don't really see why there would, would be a reason why it would be super resistant to any antibiotics because we could not use antibiotics before, unless, of course, the anatomy of the bacteria itself, for some reason, makes it less susceptible to antibiotics. I mean, it could also be that in that environment, when it was thawed, there was a big antibiotic selection pressure from other microbes in that case that drove that resistance forward, right? That could also be a, a potential. Could, could be one. And you, there's also, as Marcus sort of alluded to here, I mean, there is also quite large bunch of bacteria that are inherently quite resistant just because of the way their membranes work and things like that. I mean, if you look at Stenotrophomonas multifilia, that's a soil bacterium that is actually pretty hard to treat because it is resistant to a large number of antibiotics for quite natural reasons. Um, so it's, it's not just acquired resistance that we would have to worry about, but I, I still agree with the, the main sentiment here that it, I think those bacteria from the ice sheets are probably less likely to be resistant than current bacteria from, say, soil. Yeah, so it's... Not, 
that much less, but yeah, a little bit less. So when we're talking about re-emergence from the ice, I mean, of course, I could be proven wrong and we get this super novel, super infectious, super antibiotic-resistant uh, bacteria that emerges. But I, it, my hunch is that it is not going to happen. I think I would not push it as far as that. I would say it is very unlikely that this would happen. (laughs) Thanks everyone for a really great discussion. I think this has been one of the most interesting (laughs) discussion podcasts we've had for a long time Uh, but it's unfortunately time to wrap up so uh, thank you Sebastian Emil, Mabuba, Anna and Marcus and also thanks to our two new guests Emilio and Jamila it's been great having you on today now remember to go out and play in the snow it's not every year that we get this much snow that stays on the ground for an extended period of time uh, like it has this year not here in Gothenburg so Use this opportunity. I'm already planning for doing ice skating on the sea because I've heard that it's starting to freeze also on the sea and I've actually never been able to get out ice skating on the sea. So I just hope for cold temperatures for another week or so and then I'm going to go out and ice skate. Um, I look forward to more discussions like this in the coming year. So make sure to take care and stay healthy. This pod is hosted by the Bengtson Palmer Lab at the University of Gothenburg. If you have any questions or comments about the content of the pod, please send us a message on Twitter at Bengtson Palmer, that's one word, or you can send an email to podcast at microbiology.se. If you like what you're hearing, please give us five-star reviews in, for example, the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, thank you for listening.